Welcome to Letter to Audiences. We're so glad you've found us. You're listening to our pilot podcast episode. My name is April McDonald Killens. I use pronouns she and they. And I'm Natercia Napoleon, and my pronouns are she, her, hers. We're coming to you from Amiskwisi, Waskahegan on Treaty 6 territory. A traditional gathering place for diverse Indigenous peoples, including the Cree, Nietzsche Nakota Sioux, Iroquois, Dene, Ojibwe, Suto, Anishinaabe, Inuit, the Métis Nation, and many others. Indigenous histories, languages, and cultures were the first to occupy this place, and we respect and support these nations as continued stewards of these lands and waters. We also recognize that colonization is an ongoing process that we participate in and meet that recognition with our commitment to building right relationships that honor the sovereignty of Indigenous nations. I was born in Rio de Janeiro, Brazil, which is the colonial name for what the Tupi Indigenous peoples would call Pindorama, Land of the Palms. As an immigrant settler and theater artist who now lives and works in Amiskwasi, Waskahegan, Ward Pihesuin, Land of the Thunderbirds, I have many moments in my practice where I reflect on the traditions of storytelling and its origins. I'm humbled by the voice from this land that reminds me that I am not the first person to tell a story. I am the daughter of Irish settler and Italian immigrant parents. I was born in Robinson Huron Treaty Territory, homeland of the Anishinaabek Nation, where I grew up with my toes in the cold waters of Lake Superior. I spent my teenage years on Treaty 8 territory under the Northern Lights, where the Peace River meets neighboring waters at the Sagatawa. For nearly 20 years, I've made my home along the swift flowing river through Treaty 6 territory, Amiskwichiwaskihigan, Ward Métis. We invite you to participate in this land acknowledgement by thinking for a moment about your connection and experience with the land on which you stand, the treaty agreements or unceded territories of the place you're joining from, and the sovereignty of the nations who share your home. We are all treaty people. Letter to Audiences is a project April and I have developed based on our journeys as theatre artists. We've been on different paths that have led us to one another, and now that we're here, we're excited to share with you information that will hopefully bring awareness and an empowered position to shift the theatre industry to a better place. As we slowly make our way back to the theatre post-pandemic, we invite you to make mindful choices and consider engaging in conversations of equity and representation in the theatre. We'd like to play a little game with you to get started. While we describe a little more about ourselves, I'll ask you to try to picture us in your mind and envision a role you think we'd be suited for in the theatre. Okay, I guess I'll go first. I'm Brazilian. My skin tone is olive-based, and I have a fair complexion. I am known for my wild, curly hair that is currently dyed a dark blonde. I have brown eyes and a curved nose. My body type is also curvy. I'm five foot three, and under the social model of disability, I am non-disabled, meaning that I live my life with minimal physical barriers. This is April. I'm a white, 35-year-old with medium-length dark hair and brown eyes. 
My body is short and somewhat round, and my facial features are unique, with large eyes, round cheeks, and an uneven smile. I am also non-disabled. Take a moment, pause this episode if you wish, and reflect on how each of our appearances may affect our placement in the theater industry. If you're listening to this along with a friend, feel free to discuss. All right, you're back. I wonder what characters you've chosen for us. Did you picture either of us as a romantic interest? A villain? How about a character in a position of power? If you did, you're already thinking more creatively than most theaters. In the theater, I'm considered a character actor because of my body type and unique features. For me, this means I'm typically cast as comic relief or an older woman like a mother or a grandmother, or sometimes grotesque or strange characters like witches, monsters, or nerdy boys. Similar to April, I've been heavily encouraged toward the character role as well. Though I'm a classically trained performer, I rarely receive an audition for classical works or companies in theater. I rarely get cast as the lead in a play or musical, and more often than not, I'm the best friend, a supporting character, or an ensemble member. Funny enough, I'm not even typically seen or cast to play Latinx characters. Though Natercia and I have a great deal of privilege in our daily lives, like many other artists out there, we have experienced bias in the industry. This quick little exercise in casting was meant to introduce you to a little bit of our reality as artists. While envisioning our place in the industry, which artists often refer to this characterization as a type, you may have noticed something about your own viewing biases. These biases are generally taught or trained into us. We see certain roles go to the same type of people so often that we start to accept the world with that absolute mind frame. As an example, you might think fat people don't have love stories. Spoiler, we do. Or that black trans women aren't CEOs. Of course, neither of those things are true, but these belief systems are often born out of and sustained by poor representation in the arts and media. Marginalized artists have been pointing to a lack of representation in the arts and media for decades. From my experience, these conversations often take place behind closed doors. They also tend to happen within the marginalized demographic and not outward with the greater community. Why is that? Well, in the theater workplace, the fear of losing your livelihood by speaking up runs deep. The industry, primarily made up of freelance artists toggling a living through short-term contract work, lacks a supported system where individuals can speak up. So many of us remain quiet and tell ourselves that the workplace is what it is. But our industry is changing. And I wonder, April, what are arts patrons aware of? I wonder that too. As the context setter for Western theater in general, Broadway statistics are one specific illustration of the entire art form's condition. The most recent annual report from the Asian American Performers Action Coalition, the AAPAC for short, stated that 61.5% of all roles on New York City stages went to white actors during the 2017-18 season, making them the most visible on stage. The report names white actors as the only race to overrepresent by almost double their respective population size. 
Even when roles were not racially specific and anyone could have been cast, only 20% of those available roles were cast with Black, Indigenous, and or people of color. Throughout recent years, artists in Alberta have made attempts to quantify and visually demonstrate inequity in theatre. In Mokinsis, colonially known as Calgary, Chromatic Theatre has done the work of gathering and reporting data that reflects on racial representation. I studied their stats and found that white actors made up 72% of stage performers in the 2019-20 professional season. And their work was inspired by Yeg Theatre Stats, which was a grassroots study of gender representation on our stages. Issues of representation are of course intersectional. Barriers can be based on disability, race, poverty, gender, orientation, anti-fat bias. There are endless ways to break from the social conditions that theater and media would have us conditioned to believe are normal. I refer to this as social difference, and artists are working hard to see the multiplicity of human experience on stage. Hmm, what would be an example of that? Deaf and disability arts have been on the rise in Edmonton. The Yegg Performing Arts Accessibility Ad Hoc Group formed in 2019, with 36 organizations partnering in a research project led by Kelsey Acton, Brooke Lifeso, and a group of other contributors that examined accessibility of shows for theater goers. That study identified a need for organizations, particularly those that own their own venues, to invest in disabled-led access audits to determine priorities for change. It also found that deaf audiences were most interested in seeing deaf-led theater, something I took as a clue that diversity on creative teams will attract more diverse audiences. Meanwhile, in the US, the artists coalition We See You White American Theater released a 30-page set of demands for the theater industrial complex with principles of how to build anti-racist theater systems. I quote, as the global majority, we demand a bare minimum of 50% BIPOC representation in programming and personnel, both on and off stage, end quote. In Canadian theatre, I would say that the epicentre of a racial reckoning happened at the Stratford Festival in 2020. Black and Indigenous artists gather to talk about their experience at the festival and in the overall industry. The creation of the hashtag, In the Dressing Room, spread like wildfire on social media throughout the Black community and beyond, as theatre artists from across Turtle Island shared their industry experiences of racism and systemic racism with the public. This we know for certain. There is a revolution going on in the theatre, and artists are keeping the conversation going. So April, before we share how this conversation landed here in Edmonton, some listeners out there might be wondering how we factor into this movement. Tell us how you came into this work. Sure. I was in school working towards a master's degree related to community development. And for my grad project, I was tasked with choosing a community that I wanted to impact. I wanted to work with my theater community, and it was just so clear what we needed to work on. For an industry that considers itself progressive, the lack of diversity was the elephant in the room. I completed my year-long research project in March, Stories to Action, Co-Creating Inclusive Pathways to Professional Theater. I partnered with several organizations that make up the YEG Performing Arts Accessibility Ad Hoc Group to examine how people in Edmonton access a professional theater practice. So schooling and other avenues that we take to the professional stage. 
uh, and what role training programs play in either including or excluding people. I started out thinking that a lack of diversity was the problem I was trying to solve, but after reading hundreds of pages of survey responses from artists explaining how they'd been excluded, it is just so clear to me now that the lack of diversity is not the root problem. It's one symptom of colonial and Eurocentric attitudes shaping an industry and a society that harms people. We have a lot of work to do to make our spaces safer, and then diversity will follow. And remind me again, how many participants you had in your survey? Of course, I had 135 artists respond to my qualitative survey, and I interviewed local theatre training programs on a voluntary basis. Uh, interview participants represented 17 different training pathways in Edmonton, uh, so post-secondary theatre departments, adult learning opportunities such as workshops, um, in theater performance, improv, dance, device, theater, and theater production. And then I also had high school and youth drama programs. Uh, and then last, I interviewed two sort of equity-seeking groups, um, interest groups that operate within our theater community. As one of the participants in that survey, I remembered how curious I was to discover the results. Could you share a bit of your published findings? Sure. I'm going to talk about... Um, the artist experience, accessing professional training programs, which are a gateway into being taken seriously as a professionally trained performer, um, such as universities and intensive programs, those types of things. Ah, theater school. Generally, there is a live audition where you may perform for a panel or jury. Some programs do an interview, others might have a dance call where you learn a piece of choreography and you're assessed based on how you perform in the room through that process. There are other components to auditions depending what the program is looking for, but the common features are a jury and a set of exercises that the jury uses to assess the candidate. So what's I think really telling is that when I asked participants of my qualitative survey, how they found the enrollment process into whatever training program they had taken. When I looked at the responses from participants who identified with the dominant culture, so these are people who said that they uh, maybe were white, non-disabled, cisgendered, phrases like, oh yeah, it was just what you could expect. Um, easy and reasonable were words that came up a lot in that group. Yeah, I'm scared to ask about the other group. Respondents from historically oppressed groups were 30% more likely to have had a negative enrollment experience than those from the dominant culture. And one participant said, every audition is an exercise in gatekeeping. Another finding related to access is the power of a safe space. And, and this also relates actually to once you're in the program and you're experiencing your day-to-day -day learning and who feels like they're having a good experience and can stay in the program and be supported to succeed in graduating and getting into the industry. And this finding also relates to your experience in the industry and whether or not you belong in theater spaces where you're rehearsing and learning a role with other people. So um, artists, I asked them to think about a time when they found a strong sense of belonging in theater spaces and they described that for me. And then I asked them how that impacted them personally or creatively, what qualities were cultivated in those spaces. 
And the things that came up were like risk-taking, enthusiasm, a desire to do the work, that they found it enjoyable and they could be fearless in the room, that they had the capacity to listen to the others and support their peers. And I was shocked because the word cloud that came out of these commonly repeated answers was almost identical to the word cloud that came out from the criteria listed by institutions when I ask them to describe what they look for in a successful candidate. So this tells me two things. Students who feel like they belong in the space are better able to deliver the results the jury is looking for, which then has the potential to give artists from the dominant culture an advantage if they feel more like they belong there because they see themselves represented. But it also means that if programs can create safer spaces where difference is invited, then artists who face barriers to inclusion may be better able to demonstrate enthusiasm and risk-taking and greater capacity to support others in the room, which is exactly what juries said they look for. So I think the last thing I'll touch on is measures of excellence that repress social difference. This was another thing that came out of my findings. I'm going to quote Castagno 2014 here and say that measures of excellence may appear to be fair or impartial terms for promoting students, but can actually be a powerful sorting tool of whiteness in schools. Of course, it can't be true that excellence is objectively white and non-disabled, so there are systems of oppression creating this reality. One of my research participants said, what is the standard for excellence? Whose standards are they? That's a good question. What is the standard for excellence? Over the years, I've learned the upside of failure. That it will guide me to a better show, a better draft, or performance. Failure is my friend. Because on my path to excellence, I need the permission to fail in order to succeed. I need to allow myself to be downright awful. But what if marginalized artists don't have equal permission to fail? Can everyone afford to be mediocre once in a while? I think about the Golden Globes being cancelled, and other Hollywood Film TV awards being criticized over a lack of representation. I think it's vital to note who predominantly sets the bar for excellence, and how often the bar itself remains a mystery to so many. Did you know that theatre artists rarely receive feedback on unsuccessful auditions? Picture a career where you're a contract worker who attends interviews multiple times a month and that your common experience is to never know how your interview went and when you do, it's a simple thank you, but we decided to go in a different direction with no attached feedback. I know what you're thinking, but you could ask for feedback. I can assure you that that option is not a simple request. Theaters don't necessarily provide or model an open-door policy. Artists, more often than not, are taught to be careful around these queries. They're also left out of influential spaces like that of the board of directors. Keep in mind that many boards and non-for-profit models are populated by individuals from a corporate background and mindset. Not every theater company holds open auditions or open calls for new leadership. Once I started to peel back the layers and examine the complexity of inequity in theater, it became clear how systemic the problem was. So yeah, who is behind the audition table? Who is the decision maker? Who is the reviewer? And who is the audience member? 
as audiences, what is the lens that we receive art through and how does that inform our experience and opinions? Again, where is the bar for excellence? I want to tie this into your advocacy work, Natercia, which impacted me while I was in school. For those of you out there who don't already know this, last summer Natercia wrote 11 public letters to the Edmonton theatre community. I was here doing this work academically, and your work, your experiences shared in these letters, kept reminding me that this work matters to so many people who can't shut it down with their computer at the end of the day. Your letters reminded me who I was working for in a way. The stakes were so high for you, and watching you be courageous in that context helped me to be courageous. But it's so important for projects like mine to recognize the grassroots ways that the work is already happening in the community. And at the time, you were leading me in the dressing room conversation in Edmonton, and that really needed to be recognized. I'm interested in hearing more about how your lived experience led to that, though. Can we go there next? Sure. <laughs> Where to start? The year was 1997. My parents had just traded this world for this one. Mm -hmm. As a teenage immigrant to Canada, I felt that I would become an artist, though I never imagined a career in theatre. I loved to sing, and music became my gateway into storytelling. With no prior experience in theatre, I auditioned for a musical theatre training program that April attended as well. And there, I began my journey into theatre. That journey came with many unexpected challenges. Although my time in school confirmed that I loved theatre, I left before the end of my first year because I felt invisible. Retroactively, I can see that I was not supported by my faculty. After I left, I started to audition and work in the industry. There were many bright moments, but it was an inconsistent career at best. I needed to take my training and creative process to a deeper level. I ventured back to theatre school, this time at the University of Alberta's BFA acting program. I graduated feeling capable and mature, but there were racial barriers in the industry that I couldn't seem to transcend and school hadn't prepared me for them. In all my theater training, I never encountered a racialized faculty member. I struggled to remain hopeful about my prospects when I couldn't see myself represented in many successful theater figures. I spent years talking to racialized artists about their struggles and sharing mine in return. And in 2020, I could feel a momentous shift brewing within me. The murder of George Floyd and the Black Lives Matter movement pushed many artists to speak about the injustices of racism, but very few were acknowledging the trickle-down relevance to our own community and workplace. I decided to contribute to an atmosphere of social conscience and starting on June 4th, 2020, I wrote 11 public letters to my theatre community, inviting discussion and action about systemic racism. How can people find your letters if they want to go back and read them? And what will they find there? These letters can be accessed through my Facebook account. 
They contained several probative questions that have traveled far and wide, as well as personal stories of my journey as a racialized artist in the Edmonton theater community. Can I ask, who did you write to? I wrote to the Sterling Awards, that's Edmonton's Professional Theater Awards, Theater Network, Free Will Shakespeare, Teatro La Quindicina, Grant McEwen's Theater Arts, the Citadel Theater, University of Alberta's Drama Department, Shadow Theater, Northern Light Theater, Mayfield Dinner Theater, and approximately 12 members of national and local arts media. Think of them as reviewers. Do you want to share a little bit about the response you got from the community? <laughs> well, responses were varied, and mm, I'd rather invite patrons to review those answers, or lack thereof, and make their own observations. I also want to add a note that, in fairness, these responses came in last year, and that changes in mindset might have shifted since then. And what was your goal? What do you hope people will do with the information that they find there? I'm asking patrons to harness their perspectives into constructive action that ushers our community to a better place. I cannot necessarily tell patrons what to do or how to do it, because I also feel that there are many ways to enter into this equity-related work. But I'll offer this last thought. If nothing else, consider the act of starting a conversation. I can definitely say that I perceive that in your work, that the goal always seemed to be the conversation and to keep it going. You were really generous with people and you held that space open in a very transparent way. I appreciated that you stayed true all along to your intention of keeping the conversations in the public realm because that created a line of communication, not just to you, but to the whole community. And that was actually one of my goals, too, with my project, was to build avenues of communication that made institutions accountable to community. Absolutely. And speaking of community, after addressing our local arts awards, training institutions, theater organizations, arts media, I always pictured a 12th and final public letter to address and guide those who help fund the theater industry, our audiences. Let's do this. Dear audiences, April and I are addressing you because we feel you are a vital member of our theater ecology. We're addressing you because we believe in your power to shift the industry towards a more equitable future. We offer the following questionnaire as a springboard for reflexivity. You don't have to answer these questions out in the open or share them if you don't want to. Think of this as an exercise in awareness. But by all means, if this sparks your interest to discuss with a friend or even a theater organization, have at her. Let's start with who you are. We invite you to reflect on factors that include gender, race, class, income, sexuality, religion, disability, and physical appearance. For example, what is your primary language? Your intersecting and overlapping social identities may be both empowering and oppressing to others. How does the outside world perceive and receive you? 
What social resources are available to you? How does your identity and life circumstances impact your access towards a meaningful engagement in the theater? Maybe I'm getting ahead of myself here. Do you like theater? Is it an art form that you value? Why or why not? Why do you see theater? What draws you in? And if you answered no to the previous question, why don't you attend theater? What specifically deters you from attending? Do you consciously support a certain theater over others? What draws you to that theater company? What kind of theater do they produce? What kind of stories do they tell? Who are the faces of the theater company? What is their mandate? Does their mandate align with their programming and stated values? In an effort to sustain the place and growth of our own local economy, we often say things like, support local. But do you know how much our local theaters invest in local Edmonton-based artists? How do you select theater events? Do you seek theater that challenges you or theater that feels nostalgic to you? What are your favorite plays? Please note the origin of the works that you're thinking of. Who wrote them? Where does the playwright come from? Which demographics are represented by the main characters? If the main characters are diverse in their representation, is this representation authentic? Is it tokenized? Does the character's journey hinge on their marginalized existence? Do you view a certain theater as higher in quality over others? What informs your opinion? Do you feel connected or reflected in the stories seen on our local stages? How or how not? Can you describe a memory of seeing theater associated to your answer? When you go to the theater, think about the experience. Really visualize it. Come on the journey with me. I purchase my ticket. I anticipate the day. Maybe I dress up for the occasion. I enter the theater. I get a treat or a drink at the concession. I shuffle past bodies to get to my seat. And then I browse through my program and read some of the artist bios. I get lost in the story. Then I visit with someone at intermission and finally wrap up the night with a standing ovation. Or not. Maybe your favorite night at the theater looks a little different. It might be roving theater or immersive site-specific works. Consider what that looks like for you. Are there parts of this experience that are not accessible to others? Who's excluded? All right, we're gonna wrap up our reflexive questions here. Although there's so much more to ponder, by now you might be thinking, gosh, what can I do? Do you feel that theaters and funding bodies have open door policies to welcome patron feedback? If so, would you consider utilizing that channel for a conversation? April, some folks out there might be thinking, oh, yikes, conflict is scary. It may be easier than you think. You can write to the theater you attend and you can say something really honest, like, hey, I've never seen a story about someone like me on your stage. Or, hey, I'd like to have seen more diversity in that show. 
You can also compliment a practice you admire with an added inquiry. Like, hey, I really appreciate that your company started to integrate land acknowledgements, and I'm wondering if future seasons could have more Indigenous programming. Or how about more presence in leadership and board representation? Yeah. Instead of canceling your subscription, you can start a conversation with an artistic director or even a board member. Did you know that theater institutions often list the names of their board members and provide contact directories for their salaried employees online? And artistic directors are included in that. You can also keep up with social media posts from institutions. And when an annual general meeting happens, um, it's always going to be announced and you can consider joining that event. AGMs are open to the public and the minutes are documented. So you can also ask to read the minutes. You can continue to move up this ladder of people who make decisions who dictate whose stories are distributed and seen on our stages. You can engage with funders and sponsors. Did you know that theater companies often list their sponsors in their programs? You can contact those sponsors and say that you want them to require hmm, XYZ before sponsoring a theater project or institution. Or you can thank them for sponsoring equitable-minded projects. Why not put up your hand during a theater talkback event? and bring up an observation about the play or the narrative. And if you're a seasoned subscriber, say so. Theaters value the subscriber voice. Actually, which brings us to an important point. Your tax dollars are greatly responsible for sustaining arts institutions. I'm sorry, April. Looks like we had a, a power outage. Can you say that one more time? Your tax dollars, public funding, subsidize and sustain the industry, and rightly so. But it's important to know that most of these theater companies are actively seeking and securing taxpayer dollars year after year, and those are your dollars. So I guess someone could infer that institutions care about what happens to their public funding? Bingo! You just hit the jackpot! I actually mean that quite literally. <laughs> Many theater companies receive gaming dollars. According to the government of Alberta, the visual and applied arts and live performance industries contribute approximately $1.3 billion in GDP annually and sustains nearly 20,000 jobs in Alberta. The 2021 Alberta budget assigns $26.7 million in public funds to the arts. But okay, hang on. Stay with me. If Alberta has a wide and diverse demographic, partly made up of Indigenous, Black, people of colour, gender diverse, deaf, disabled, 2S, LGBTQIA+, body size diverse, neurodiverse, language diverse communities, but we predominantly see a singular story on our stages, and these marginalized communities are contributing funding dollars to arts organizations via their taxes. Isn't this um <laughs> unfair? Maybe even in some cases biased and discriminatory? Yes. My answer is all of the above. Everyone is paying taxes. Everyone should get to enjoy and find belonging in publicly funded art. Art is a central means of cultural expression. It's how we tell our story as a place and as a people. If we're excluding people from those stories, our work is no longer in service to the public. So in closing, Natercia, you envisioned your last letter being to audiences. And I wonder now that you're here, what is your hope for the future? Ooh, that is a big question with a lot of opportunity for nuance that can't be covered in a single conversation. But 
I'm hoping theatergoers will return with a newfound perspective, a discerning eye, and maybe a little agency. Notice the promotional pictures posted on social media and billboards. Notice the choices in programming, casting, and general institution hiring practices. Theater is full of rituals all around, but in my opinion, it's okay to disturb a ritual once in a while. Maybe even a lot. Start a conversation. Choose to engage. I share that hope. So often in the past few years, I've left a theater asking myself about the play I just saw. Why are we telling this story? Why now? And I hope that theater makers are beginning to ask themselves that too when they're choosing the stories, the characters, the performers, and the message of the plays they produce. I want theater makers to recognize that shaping public bias is endemic to media work. What we see in storytelling shapes how we understand society and our place in it, and if theater makers can embrace that this is part of our job, then representation becomes a pillar in every project. It is my hope that theater continues to diversify so that patrons, audiences, get to see themselves and their stories represented on stage more and more, and so we can all experience the growth that happens when we intimately experience the world through someone else's eyes. Here's how you can access our work. My research is hosted on Theatre Alberta's website at theateralberta.com forward slash resources forward slash YAG Accessibility Group. And also on my own website, transposethestage.ca. You can find me on Instagram at April Killens, And you can find my Instagram at natercia.napoleon, which is my last name. On Facebook, I'm April McDonald Killens. And I'm Natercia Napoleon. And that's where you can find my community letters as well. And if you'd like to check out any of my further writing, feel free to Google 2020 Year of the Iconoclast on Theatre Alberta and Reimagining Community and the Workplace of Theatre for Culture Days Alberta. We'd like to take this opportunity to say thank you to FoundFest and Common Ground Arts. We also have a secret plan to expand this episode into a full podcast series. So if you would like to donate or sponsor us to help us make that happen, feel free to get in touch. Ciao for now.